Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. What absolutely tortures you when you travel? One of mine is totally self-imposed. I'm going to share what that's all about in just a second. Plus today, you're going to hear from a professional guidebook writer. How did he end up writing a guidebook? How does that even happen? And what about this destination, Morocco? What do we need to know? Where do we need to go? Why is it such a great place to visit? Why should we go deeper than the usual spots? And how did my guest today end up living in a small village there (laughs) from San Francisco to Morocco? How does that happen? We're going to get into it all and much more in today's show right now. Thanks for being here, my friend, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, tuning in, letting me bring a little travel into your ears. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Are you ready to gallivant off to Morocco today? We're having a bit of a destination episode. We're going to cover much more than just the destination including my guest's story and how he ended up there in the first place, his life as an expat, plenty of tips and different perspectives coming your way today. First, I want to talk to you about this thing that tortures me when I travel sometimes, and it is totally self-imposed. First, I want to quickly thank Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. If you go to zerototravel.com slash Tortuga, you're going to find some incredible backpacks and travel gear, the ones that I use. It's the holidays now at the time of this recording. If you're looking for a gift for somebody or yourself, you can get 10% off any Tortuga backpack or any of their gear with the promo code TRAVEL just for being a listener of this show. If you enter the promo code TRAVEL when you check out just the word TRAVEL, you'll get 10% off any of the Tortuga backpacks. I'm looking at my Tortuga set out right now, which I just used the other day to go into the city and record a live podcast that's coming at you fairly soon. So I put all my gear in there and had my work stuff and put my computer in the computer sleeve. It's just a great little pack for setting out into the city or for a weekend. I use the Outbreaker for longer trips and shorter trips as well. I use the Day Pack from Tortuga pretty much every day to work from coffee shops and just around town. These things are awesome. You're going to use them when you travel and when you're at home. 
doing your little excursions and your little adventures, check it out, zerototravel.com slash Tortuga, 10% off with the promo code TRAVEL. Just enter the word travel when you check out. And if you get anything, you'll also be supporting this show. So I thank you very much for that. Okay, what tortures me when I travel? I'll tell you one thing that drives me absolutely nuts. And like I said, it is self-imposed because technically I can change things around and not allow this. And I know you can relate to this. If you've been traveling before, you've definitely been in this situation before. When you land somewhere or get somewhere and for whatever reason... You have a limited amount of time there. Maybe you're at the end of your trip. Maybe you have some business thing you have to go to or you have to get back for work. Uh, Maybe you just said you'd meet a friend somewhere and you only have a few days and you get to a place and you haven't done much research or you're not really quite sure what it is, just kind of a stopover. And it turns out, wow, there's a lot of stuff to see here. I'm feeling this place. I want to stay here for a month or two months or six months or at least a few weeks to explore, but you can't. You can't because you got to get going in just a few days. That happened to me in Morocco. We had this trip booked and it was actually an amazing present from my wife, so I certainly cannot complain. We were in Marrakesh and we spent a handful of days there and I started reading about the Atlas Mountains and all the different adventures around there and the places to go and my mind started going crazy and I felt, oh, This is torture. I want to go do all this stuff. It's right there. I can just hop on that bus. I can hop on that plane. I can get there and I can have these adventures and I could just adventure here for months on end, just get lost. But we were only there for a handful of days. And that's why I was so excited to bring on my guest today to talk about Morocco because this was one of those places for me. And that certainly happened to me for a variety of reasons, the ones I mentioned and other reasons, just being in a place and not being able to quite go as deep as you want. You feel me on that? Have you been there? I'm sure you've been there before. It's torture, right? But self-imposed, I could rearrange my schedule and you can cancel things and make things happen. But, you know, oftentimes it's a little more difficult and then you just have to save it as a place to come back to. That's the upside of this. You know, anytime I get that feeling of torture, oh, I just can't go the places I want to go and see everything here. I think, well, you know what? Let's bookmark this because now this is a place I get to come back to and explore further and be excited about returning to. So never hurts to leave things unexplored a bit. So you have an excuse, good reason to go back. (laughs) There you have it. Let's get into today's show. I'll see you on the other side, my friend. My guest today is the author of the Moon Travel Guide to Morocco. Today, we're going to get tips on traveling through that country, plus hear about life as an expat father in Paris and much more. I'm looking at his face right now. It's Lucas Peters, and you can find his work at lucasmpeters.com. Lucas, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me on Zero to Travel, man. It's awesome to be here. Well, you sent me an email because I really appreciated this because you, <laughs> you were totally disagreeing with something I said in a previous episode because my wife and I did an episode about seven travel tips for traveling with toddlers. And one of the things we said is, hey, maybe consider like leaving the stroller behind. And you were like, no, dude. Like, yeah, I agree with you on this stuff. But like the stroller thing, I'm going to have to disagree with you. And then you you came with all these points. And I was like, hmm. Now he's convincing me about this stroller thing. And then I was looking into who you are and what you do. And I was like, oh, this sounds like you have a really diverse 
background in terms of like travel and you moving around a lot. And yeah, I thought it would be great to have you on as an expert in Morocco because that is one of the countries that I put on another episode I did with my wife about countries that we visited that we want to go back to. And Morocco is one of those places that I don't feel like I've seen enough of. So I was wondering if you ever imagined that you would hear yourself being introduced as a guidebook writer. No. (laughs) (laughs) As a traveler, is that something that you aspired to at some point or did it just sort of happen? Uh, honestly, it was something I was trying to avoid. Uh, okay. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you grow up, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and uh, we're at, you know, uh, Stone's Throw away from uh, the home of Rick Steves. So, you know, I grew, I grew up with the, the Rick Steves, of, you know, him being this, uh, you know, kind of uh, the quintessential travel writer in a way. You know, he starts with the, you know, the, the kind of bootstrap, you know, traveling around Europe, and then, you know, you go through all that. And uh, to where he is today, which is uh, very much not bootstrap travel anymore. It's not, it's not, you know, shoestring this. It's not uh, any sort of cheap travel, you know. Like, I mean, there's a couple of pointers here and there in his books. But, uh, you know, he's kind of uh, aged with his audience a little bit. And when I first started traveling, like a lot of people, I was uh, quite a bit younger. And uh, Rick Steves was already kind of a generation, you know, beyond me. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, like I read a couple guidebooks, didn't like them, thought they gave me bad information. And so I thought I'd, I'd have nothing to do with this industry. Uh, that was until I was in Morocco and, uh, I was with, uh, uh, older, like it was the 2009, I'd moved in 2009 and I, the month before I went, I was like, okay, I'll do this smart. I'll buy a guidebook. I haven't looked at a guidebook in five years. It'll, it'll steer me right at the very least. I'm going to be living there. So I need some sort of information, you know? Um, and unfortunately that particular iteration of the guidebook was just full of outright lies. Um, just really, really bad information all the way around. I mean, we're not talking like the prices of stuff that can change, but outright falsities. Um, I was living in Ifran, this little village in the middle of the Moroccan mountains. Uh, not a lot of people there, you know, it's two, 3000 people. Most guidebooks give it one or two paragraphs. You know, there's not a, a lot to do, although it's very popular with Moroccan tourists. Uh, but the one thing they have there is this old, uh, stone lion. It's a, it's an old big carved stone lion. And, uh, <laughs> the lonely planet had written that, um, don't take your picture there because the cops might arrest you. You know, something to that effect, you know, like the cops were there to stop you from taking pictures of this stone line. And having lived there for, you know, a month or so and having read this and having seen everybody and their mother and their mother's mother and their mother's mother's mothers with their grandchildren taking pictures in front of the stone line with the cops right there. I realized that, in fact, the cops were uh, only there to direct traffic uh, and, in fact, would happily even take your photo if you were there. Uh <laughs> So, you know, it's just, it's, it was stuff like that that just drove me nuts. And uh, that's, uh, in a way, after a couple of years of just reading a lot of things about Morocco that were either wrong or, you know, maybe off the mark or maybe a colored a little too, quote unquote, exotic, I thought, hey, why don't I start writing kind of my version of Morocco, um, which um, I hope is a bit more culturally informed and uh, a bit more kind of on the nose, so to speak. Well, I think this is where the internet and the rise of travel blogs and sort of the, I wouldn't say the downfall of guidebooks, but you know, when you now have a physical paper guidebook, like you said, prices go out of date pretty quickly because it takes time just to get it. And then by the time you publish it, you're really looking at information that's a year or two old. 
you know, your example is a, a great picture of, I, I just imagine, okay, this author was probably just passing through and just saw police there and was just like, oh, let me just make a quick note about this because I'm getting off the bus here for two minutes and I'm on my way to another destination. I just have to write a paragraph on this place. You know, I wish it was like that. Um, I actually did my research on this particular thing because it just unnerved me this much. And this is a, a little bit of my uh, background as being someone who's done uh, 12 years of college or something. I like to do research. I enjoy it. And so um, the <laughs> with this particular example, the thing that drove me mad wasn't that because uh, I originally thought like you it was someone they drove through quickly they misunderstood uh, you know their interpreter or someone as happens in Morocco someone kind of spun them a yarn and but in fact I, I saw the same paragraph nearly word for word in not only previous editions of the Lonely Planet but also previous editions of the Rough Guide dating back to the 1990s oh, okay yeah, you know, so really for me, that's like, oh, all right, so it's plagiarism. And like, like right, I was yeah. plagiarism in class. I'm like, they hadn't passed the through there. They just looked at some old guidebooks, right? Oh, yeah, that is <laughs> the worst. You know, so uh, when the opportunity came for me to do my own guidebook, I was like, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. And so, you know, everything that I write about, you know, it could be a hotel, it could be a restaurant, it could be uh, a place, it could be a, you know, a monument, it could be whatever. I've been there and I've experienced it. And luckily I do speak French and I do speak Arabic. Um, and if, if all else fails, I have my wife who's from Tangier right beside me half the time. So, you know, if, if something is, um, I'm, I'm not understanding something, I could always ask her and you know say, hey, so Amina, do I understand this correctly? Is this what this guy is saying? And, you know, and this way you get to the root of kind of, a, 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 for me, like a truer kind of version of what a travel guide should be, particularly for Morocco, which... Uh, like you were saying, with the rise of the travel blogs and everything, you know, a TripAdvisor, of course, you know, I use TripAdvisor all the time. Um, you know, these things, in some ways, they kind of outdate a guidebook. But on the other hand, when traveling a country like Morocco or a lot of African countries, I'd say, um, in particular, where you don't always have Internet and things can get confusing very quickly, uh, it's nice to have something right there. You know, whether it's like a PDF on your iPad or something or actual paper copy you know it's nice to have some sort of reference to um to kind of give you that that uh center you know that some sometimes we need when we travel you know absolutely i i mean how did you end up in morocco because the only thing i know about your story and which is very little by the way which makes this really fun for me to have this conversation and that was really intentional because i did some research and i looked at your website but i'm like you know what? i don't want to go too deep on this guy but it sounds like you have been a lot of different places all over, and, I, and you were living in a small village in Morocco. You said you moved there in 2009. Why did you move to a small village in Morocco in 2009? Uh, but almost maybe the better question is, why did I move from San Francisco in 2009? Okay. <laughs> why did you do that? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so in 2009, I found myself I, living in San Francisco. I've been there for a couple of years. You know, like uh, a lot of people probably that tune into uh, not only this podcast that you run, but also on the Location Indie podcast, uh, like a lot of these other people, I'd, um, I just wasn't very content with my office job. You know, I, I was, you know, put in kind of my nine to five. I uh, didn't see myself in that office culture too much longer. And so I was looking for something else to do. And I what were you doing? What were you doing there? I was editing. Uh, I had a job as editor for um, a wire service, uh, an entirely boring job that basically means I was the last line of defense um, in the dark arts of press releases. Uh, so. <laughs> How long did you work there? 
uh, two years. Yeah, I did two years there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was an okay job for an office job, but that's the problem. It was still an office job and I wanted to do something else. And I had my master's in English by then. And I'm, so I was looking at a, maybe teaching English somewhere. And originally I was looking around the U.S., didn't even really think about going overseas at all. But the only jobs I can find in the U.S. were out on the Aleutian Islands, you know, in upstate New York and Watertown, just off Lake Erie at some community college there. And I thought, man, if I got to be this remote in the U.S., why not be really remote in the world? And so I started my um, search to, uh, you know, South Korea, Thailand, um, you know, this whole kind of Southeast Asia. Um, and on a, on a whim, I, I kind of uh, applied for one job in Morocco. Uh, and keep in mind, I've never been to any of these places before. You know, I'd never been to Southeast Asia. I'd never been to Africa. And um, the Morocco job just looked really interesting. And if you know anything about Morocco, it's uh, it's a short flight to Europe. You know, it's a two-hour flight into you know, into France. And I have a lot of friends already in France. And so I thought, hey, well, um, you know, if, if it goes really bad, I'll just fly to Europe for, you know, for a week or two. Um, so yeah, so I took a job teaching there, um, in this little village, there's a university that happens to be, uh, it's Alajoin University and it happens to run a kind of an American style liberal arts program. Uh, the link, the classes are all mostly in English. And so I took a job teaching literature and like composition there. And, uh, which meant basically I had the, you know, some more time to travel as well. So not only did my day to day life was all of a sudden became a lot more interesting than, you know, uh, you know, hanging out in the mission at some, you know, <laughs> burrito joint waiting for a IPA. But you know, all of a sudden I'm like living in this village where I, I don't even know how to order vegetables. Right. And know? this is an extreme difference, right? So, I mean, when you, did you find the gig on Dave's ESL Cafe or one of those types? Of- you know, I, I remember I looked at Dave's. Uh, this wasn't on Dave's though. I think this actually came up in a random Google search, honestly. Like I think I was, uh, I just decided to plug in like something like English teaching jobs. And then I just started listing countries that I was interested in to see what Google kind of popped up. Because a lot of times uh, universities, they don't do a good job of advertising positions. So okay, that's a good, good tip. Maybe, a good tip for maybe some listeners out there is uh, a lot of universities, they um, you won't find them on Dave's. You won't find them, um, you know, on any of the, the kind of popular university website forums um, that are listing, you know, university positions. Uh, outside of the U.S., you know, most of your, you know, outside of the U.S. universities and colleges, they rely on local networks and they'll put them on their website and that's about it. So, right. okay. Yeah. So you're looking at specific universities in Morocco or insert whatever country. And so you plugged Morocco into Google. Yep. Okay. So what was it about Morocco that made you type out? I mean, there are a lot of countries that you could, was there something? It was probably down on my list, like probably number 27 on my list. It was just kind of random in a way. Yeah, it was just kind of random. You were just uh, willing to kind of go anywhere, right? That wasn't the United States, basically. Exactly. You know, like at that point, I think I said, hey, uh, if I can't find my, you know, the next best job here, I'll find it somewhere else. Um, And at that time, you know, 2009, I didn't think a lot about, you know, writing for money like I'm, you know, doing now for travel writing and stuff. I didn't really even think that was a possibility. I was still thinking someone someone else had to pay my bills. Someone else had to pay me to to do some sort of job function. So, um, yeah, just I said, why not cast a net over the world and kind of follow the most interesting one? 
Um, so yeah, nothing in South America panned out. That was kind of my first, uh, I still haven't been to South America. Uh, and that was the first place I started looking. I was like, all right, Brazil would be fantastic. Colombia sounds great. You know, uh, yeah. Chile, why not? You know, uh, isn't it funny how, like, yeah, I mean, if you had gone there, maybe you would have written the guidebook to, to Chile or whatever. You would have had a totally different life. Yeah, exactly. You, you never know, you know, like Providence. You know? <laughs> okay. So you, you're in San Francisco doing the burrito IPA mission thing. And then uh, now you open your eyes one day and you're just, holy crap, I live in this village in Morocco. And now I got to figure this out. What was that transition like for you? And what were those first days and weeks like? Amanda, the first few weeks and into maybe the first few months were really rough. I'm not going to, you know, like I never sugarcoat that when I talk to people about this. And one of these days I'll probably actually write this story out. But, um, you know, when I left San Francisco, I, I made a clean cut of it. You know, I sold off all my furniture, you know, whatever I could put up on Craigslist, I put up on Craigslist. Got and rid I, of everything. Yeah. I just got rid of everything. Did that you know? make you nervous or were you just kind of I was stoked. comfortable with that. Okay. I was excited, you know, like uh, you were feeling I, I, that freedom buzz, kind of. Yeah, you know, and I, I think uh, it also, I you know, I was just hitting thirty years old, and um, you know, like I, I don't know, I had this whole sense of you know dropping the baggage in my twenties and like picking up something fresh in my thirties, and you know, it just seemed like a nice, nice way to make a clean break. And so, uh, other than other than some books that I had boxed up in my uh, mom's garage. Um, I packed everything, you know, I was going to take with me, um, into two bags. Um, I had my, my snowboard bag because, uh, what, what two paragraphs there were in Efron and the, you know, guidebooks, what I could find on Wikipedia, which was not much is that there was a small ski station in town that was operational for a couple months out of the year. And I did not think Morocco and skiing went together at all. Uh, but I love snowboarding. So I was like, I'm packing my snowboard that's uh, coming with me. So, <laughs> so I packed my snowboard, some winter gear, um, just to be prepared, you know, for the winter, because I didn't know what I could find there. Um, and then another kind of bag of just clothes and, you know, a few kind of precious books and whatnot. And then, um, yeah, I'd carry on stuff. And I, I was gone, you know, just like that. Um, unfortunately, after you know, we've all been through these flights where one's delayed, you missed your connection and all this stuff happens. So I, I had a series of that and getting to Morocco. So by the time I got to Morocco, I'd spent a one night in an airplane and another night in an airport and was just, you know, just sleep deprived. And, uh, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> get to Fez and I just want to go to bed, but just get me into my new home. I just want to go to bed. The university was nice enough to send a driver to meet me. Um, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting for my bags to show up and they never show up. So all I have, you know, I had in my, uh, my carry on, all I had with me is, uh, you know, I have my computer, um, you know, I had a couple books to read and I have one, one spare change of clothes that I'd already had to use on the trip over. And so it took two weeks for the airline, uh, American airlines, by the way, or not American, sorry, uh, air France. Air France, I've had the worst luck. They've lost three of my bags. One of them indefinitely. My Christmas presents from last year uh, for my two-year-old son, gone indefinitely. So I am doing my best not to use They were just friends. like, this guy's American. Just throw it. Yeah, like, just no, yeah, throw, him off, throw him off the luggage rack. You I know, kid like, you French people. Yeah. I <laughs> uh, so yeah, they, I mean, so Air France, I'm on a minor strike against at the moment. Because um, that was that was the first of three times that they had lost or mis misplaced my baggage. Uh, but this one, yeah, this one hurts. It was, you know, the just getting to Morocco and first, I have, like, really big trip overseas, and you're yeah, there on yeah. your own, and 
yeah, just nothing's there, you know, like, uh, so, so what do you do? Um, so I, <laughs> I ended up hand washing my, uh, my, my laundry in my sink every night for my first two weeks in Morocco, you know, um, before finally, you know, my bags did arrive and, you know, then the school year starts and then you're kind of busy working and, um, most of that works out pretty well. Um, but you said it was rough the first couple months, just what, what was yeah. rough about it? Well, so, uh, the outside of the hand washing every night and yeah, hand washing every night. So I, I, I mean, I didn't have anything to wear really. So like I, I, I did, I did like all my, uh, quote unquote professorial sort of clothes I imagined wearing, you know, I had my, uh, little blazer, you know, and my like slacks and my, you know, button up shirts yeah. for no, my first none of class. That. Yeah, no, none of that. They so called I, you I'm the wearing, dirty like, professor, I heard. Yeah, no, I am the dirty professor in like <laughs> cargo pants and like a ratty t shirt, you yeah, know? Yeah. So that sounds more uh, professorial, I think. Yeah, so yeah, maybe it does. Um, so this is, uh, so this, yeah, this is, so other than, you know, the, the that sounds like you were you were painting the picture of the like the Princeton professor, and <laughs> this is more of the village professor, right? The, the <laughs> well, I mean, the thing with Morocco that I learned before I went is it is. Um, it is a bit of a hierarchical culture where there are kind of these standardized standardized norms. You know, a lot of a lot of times, you know, when people are reading, you know, the first time on quote unquote traditional wear of Morocco, it'll be like jalabas and kaftans and stuff like that. And yes, that had its place in history, and people still do wear that. Um, but in professional spheres, you know, you're expected to wear kind of a tie or a button up shirt. You know, I mean, you walk into a bank. Everybody there is going to be in a button-up shirt and a tie, um, just as they are all over Europe or in the U.S., you know. Um, and so, like, just going into it, I wanted to fit in and, you know, make a good first impression, which I, I didn't have an opportunity to do, unfortunately. Um, but uh, beyond that, you know, there's some of the normal sort of uh, struggles. Like, I, I'd arrived on the first day of Ramadan, and I'd never lived in a Muslim country before. I've never experienced Ramadan. I don't really know what's happening um, but what basically happens during Ramadan is everything shut during the day, uh, especially in small towns. And so when I go out for grocery shopping in the afternoon, I couldn't really find much, you know, I mean, nothing was really open. Um, and so just like figuring out when I could do my shopping to get, you know, food to, you know, make spaghetti or whatever at night, you know, is kind of, kind of tough. And being a small town, there's not like restaurants you can go out to or anything like that. So um, so this, you know, there's a, this normal sort of adjustment. Um, an interesting side note um, was that during uh, during Ramadan, uh, when you, you know, as people probably all listening to this know, Ramadan, you're fasting for a month between sunrise and sunset. So you're not drinking, you're not smoking, you're not eating, you know, none of, nothing is supposed to pass your lips, you know, from the first break of uh, the dawn light until the sun sets. And when the sun sets, of course, everyone's really excited and, you know, is hungry and thirsty and all that stuff. Um, but to let everybody know that it's okay to break the fast, they fire a cannon. Uh, you, you hear cannon fire in Ephron. And I did not expect that. So the first time I heard this cannon fire, I'm like, what is this? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like what's going down here right now? Yeah, I, I had a minor panic of, you know, like I'm imagining that is, you know, Algeria invading the country, you know, what's going on here? Uh, and I mean, of course, it's nothing like that, you know, so uh, so there's, uh, yeah, there's stuff like this. Um, but these but, are the experiences you go for, right? This yeah, is the exactly. reason you leave San Francisco in the office job to be kind of thrown into a situation where you don't know 
what's going to happen. And it sounds like those things were coming fast and furious for you early on. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what it was, you know, almost everything was, uh, you know, like bags are lost. You don't have your kind of stuff you're planning on having, you know, that little bit of home that you took with you, you know, um, like I remember I had two bags of really nice coffee and, and I, that's all I wanted in my first couple of weeks was coffee. And I had that damnedest fine time trying to find a decent cup of coffee. Um, but you know, it's, it's, yeah. So stuff like that kind of makes it more difficult. And then you add on, um, you know, at the time my French was really, really bad. I didn't know any Arabic. And so there's a lot of kind of confusion, a lot of, you know, the hand gestures trying to just navigate your, your daily life. Um, and then, you know, of course the normal stuff was starting a new job and all that stuff. Um, but then but on the, the flip side, I mean, you must've been the, the adventurous side of it and just sort of the, the newness. I mean, you end, it sounds like you ended up sticking around there for a while. Six years. Yeah. How did that, I mean, was yeah. it just, you just settled into life there and it just became, Hey, this is a place I've, I have fallen in love with now. Or is it cause did you meet your wife there or how well, did so you're living in Norway right now? Yes. Right. And uh, you've been there for a little while now. Yes. Yeah. And so when you first got to Norway, you know, everything's kind of fresh, exciting, new, uh, kind of underlying all that. There's also this other, you know, this other kind of uh, you know, way of living. You know, there's this whole other thought press thought process of what a day to day life means, what it what it what it should be, um, you know, day to day, week to week, month to month. You know, there's different seasons. Uh, there's different sorts of appreciations in terms of just culturally. Uh, you know, whether that's types of food or types of music or, you know, family relations, you know, all this stuff. And I think it takes anybody um, moving from a, one culture to the other to really learn that and then start to appreciate that. And I think my first year in Morocco was really about learning that. And my second year is when I started to really appreciate that because they do um, and I, I hate to generalize about any people anywhere, but, um, you know, the general vibe of Morocco, uh, whether you're in the city or in the country, um, is that there is, you know, there are, there are these very, very strong family ties. Um, there, there are very strong communal bonds there as well. Um, something that, you know, growing up in Seattle and living in San Francisco and stuff, you know, we, we don't experience in the same way. Um, and then there's this whole notion of time, you know, uh, time is elastic, <laughs> you know, it's not a very punctual, I'll be there at five o'clock, I'll see you, you know, right on the dot. Um, it's, it's very elastic there. And, um, you know, at first it drives you nuts. I think, I think most people come in from, you know, the Western world, you know, and the, you know, like when I see Germans for the first time, you know, which are really known, of course, you know, that's the stereotype we have of Germans as being very punctual and all this stuff. Uh, but truth be told, the first few times I, uh, I've encountered German tourists there, one of the first things they told me that amazed them was that time could be different. <laughs> it stuck with me as it, yes, it can. As a matter of fact, time can be different. <laughs> and it's just in terms of appreciating that as opposed to seeing it as a, a negative, I guess you can look at it both ways. I think it's interesting what you said about the, the two year thing, kind of the first year to learn, you go through all the seasons and you have all these experiences the first time and then the second year to appreciate I would say generally, I, I agree, and I, f I find that to be true. And, and it does take time to, like you said, the first year, you're kind of experiencing all these things for the first time, and there's the newness and, and this sort of travel edge to everything, right? Well, even if you're living in another country, 
it's like you're traveling because you're experiencing these things for the first time. And then it comes for the second time. And then I think, at least for me, you start to pick up some of the, or you're picking up more of the cultural subtleties in, in the country itself. And then adding those in with those experiences that you're having for the second or third time. And then you're starting to formulate this, this picture of what it means to be in the Norwegian culture, in the Moroccan culture or whatever it is. It's a totally different experience spending years in a country as opposed to passing through and getting a sense of it. I mean, even if you're traveling there for one or two months, it's still different when you're spending more time, of course. So you stuck around there for a while and now you, sounds like you've traveled all over Morocco. I think it's a good time to get into some tips on Morocco. And I kind of was thinking, well, what should we, what can I call this segment or, or what could we, how can we talk about this? And I kind of thought the thing that kept popping up for me was beyond Marrakesh because a lot of people go to Marrakesh. I've been, and it was very nice. My wife took me for a, a birthday and it was so cool. And I'd always wanted to go to Morocco, but it was, we didn't have much time. It was a short trip. We were there for, I think four nights, five days. And I'm seeing, you know, the Atlas Mountains aren't too far off. And there's, I'm reading about all these things in Morocco. I'm just like, no, we need like four months here. We can't just have these four days. It just happened that we could go somewhere and then we had that amount of time. So we just picked that place. And that's normal. Yeah, go visit the city, come home. But I just got this sense of there's a lot to see and experience here. I need, and this is a place I need to come back to, which is why I put it on my list. Talk to us about Morocco. I'm not sure where to start, but I think Marrakesh is the is the entry point for a lot of people. But let's say, you know, we have two to four weeks to explore. What are, what are some of the things we're looking at that we could be doing in terms of activities and, and places to go for the independent traveler? So I'm working on, uh, right now, I just got a word from my publisher um, that I'll be working on a new guidebook for Moon, for the Moon brand, uh, called Marrakesh and Beyond. Oh, so that, okay. that works very good with this segment. So, uh, yeah, so we can call Beyond Marrakesh, Marrakesh and Beyond, etc. So, uh, yeah, so two to four weeks. If you, if, I mean, a lot of people, you know, if, especially if they're coming from the U.S., most people have about a week. Um, and if you're good with your... Um, with the overcoming jet lag, you know, you can, you can kind of get over that one day hump and you're usually pretty good to go see some stuff. What I generally tell people when they're start to plan their trip is to uh, think about flying, not into Casablanca. Uh, so uh, Casablanca is the hub for a lot of international trips. So if anybody out there is listening and they're, you know, flying through Dubai or flying from Southeast Asia, or, you know, flying from, you know, North America or South America, Undoubtedly, like if you're going to look for a ticket um, to Morocco, it's going to end up in Casablanca. Um, and that is not necessarily the way I would go about it. Uh, Casablanca, despite the name cachet, you know, from the, uh, probably from the movie and all that, um, it's not a very romantic city. Um, it's, it's busy. You know, it's a Morocco's biggest city. Um, you have to dig deep to find its charm, I think. And I think once you've been through Morocco and seen some other places, then it's a little easier to find a charm to Casablanca, I feel. Uh, but uh, I mean, for what you're imagining, for what most people imagine in their heads, it's a hell of a lot easier to fly into Europe, uh, spend a night, get over your jet lag, um, spend a night in Madrid, spend a night in Barcelona, spend a night in Paris, uh, spend a night in London, and then fly directly from one of the European capitals into Marrakesh or into Esuera or into Tangier. 
um, because you can go immediately into these kind of more interesting cities that have a bit more of that, uh, you know, old world charm that I think draws a lot of us to Morocco. Um, so that's usually the first kind of tip I tell people is if you can, uh, don't fly into Casablanca, fly into any other city you can. Um, there's another solid reason for this as well beyond just Casablanca. Because the Casablanca airport is the busiest, it also usually has the longest customs lines. Um, so, for example, if I'm flying into Casablanca, I, I don't think I've spent less than an hour in the customs line there. It's it's almost nearly always an hour long for me to get through customs there. Um, Tangier takes me 10 minutes. Marrakesh takes me 10 minutes. Um, it's been rare. I've had to wait more than 15 minutes in, for a customs line in any other city. So this is this is kind of like just to start your trip off on the right foot, because I believe that is, you know, it's kind of a uh, what do you call it? Like, a, I don't know, when you when you start something off on the right foot, you're really setting like the tone for your trip. And for me, if you want to set a great tone, you know, start off on the right foot. And for me, that begins from the moment your foot touches the ground. Um, another great tip for those that are in Europe, uh, you can take the ferry from Tarifa, Spain into Tangier. It's a 30-minute ferry ride, as beautiful as all get out. And you're crossing continents, you're crossing the, you know, Strait of Gibraltar. Um, you can see the Rock of Gibraltar in the distance, you know, from the coast of Spain. You can see the coast of Morocco, um, and they're right there. You know, they're uh, almost kissing cousins, you might say. Um mm -hmm. But, and it, and it, it is incredible to see just in the space of, you know, seven miles or about 14 kilometers, uh, how different the worlds can be, you know, how much they change. And also at the same time, kind of how similar they are as well. You know, these just get thrown into high definition, especially that first time you kind of make that, that ferry crossing. So for me, that's the kind of the, the best ways to come into Morocco. You know, it's either by ferry into Tangier or flying into any airport that isn't Casablanca. Um, so I think, I think that's a good start for the trip. And then you were saying if you had two or four weeks, what would you do? You know, a lot of times people build their travels around certain activities they like or experiences they want to have. And I know there are some traditional tourist types of experiences that you can have in Morocco. Uh, what some of those are, what some of those might are maybe are worth it and not worth it. <laughs> those are even, even better tips sometimes is the the things that, hey, you've heard a lot about this, but it's... And of course, that's all subjective, but you know, you so, can so, go. Hey, tip number one. Hey, you've heard a lot about Casablanca. Don't go there. Right. Okay. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Sometimes it's the things that people say not to do that uh, kind of paint a clearer picture of what to do. Sometimes. I, I guess the other thoughts I have with traveling to Morocco are, uh, you know, I think about the seasons. Uh, I would not go there in the summer. Um, yeah, summertime, you know, if you stick to the coast, it could be okay in terms of temperature. It's not too hot, but the coasts are flooded by all the tourists from Europe, all the tourists from Morocco. Um, you know, everybody kind of vacates the desert and the that really hot core of the country, and they, they flood to the coast. And so even if you stick to the coast where, you know, temperatures will be nice, you know, they'll be hot, sunny, warm, you can jump in the ocean and all that. Um, it's It's almost too crowded to make it fun. I think and particularly in some places that are typically a little bit more off the beaten path, you know, a little bit less, less traveled. Um, that's, that's true except for probably August, you know, maybe July. So when are the best months to travel then? Um, spring and fall by okay. far the best, you know, um, I, I, if chosen between, between the two, I'd say probably spring's the best time to go. 
Um, because then you get, you know, if you're in the, in the mountains, you get all these beautiful flowering, you know, plants everywhere. Uh, and, and you start to see the green, you know, really, really kind of take root. The coasts are still great for, you know, taking a little, little swim in the ocean. It'll be chilly, but it's still really, really nice out. And then, uh, in the desert, um, your temperatures during the day are, are bearable. You know, they aren't up to, you know, 45, 50 degrees Celsius. They aren't like in the 110s and 120s, but there's more going to be like 90, 90 degrees out or so, which makes, you know, so you can do a day in the desert very comfortably. What are some of those places to go that might be sort of including some of the popular visits? Say we could take the Atlas Mountains, for example, to have the Atlas Mountains experience, but maybe you know a place that's a little more off the beaten track where you can have that experience and it's a little more fulfilling for the independent traveler there's two atlas mountain ranges there's the middle atlas and the high atlas the high atlas mountains are much closer to marrakesh so for those people like diving in marrakesh first and exploring the gemna and all that great history that honestly it is worth it to explore marrakesh um you know there's a lot of kind of quote-unquote typical tourist things that you know for me there's a reason why they're typically touristy is because they're awesome you know you should right. go see i this. agree yeah. yeah like somebody uh, tries to tell me oh don't go to Machu Picchu; it's too touristy it's like well <laughs> what do you mean you know this is where it, it's not good to listen to you know people i mean it's touristy for a reason like you yeah, said exactly you know don't go yeah. hike the great wall of china because it's yeah, too touristy, too touristy. Well, it's, it's cool <laughs> so uh, so there's stuff like that that i think is totally worth it and it's i mean Mar- you know marrakesh in particular they've been throwing that party on the gemna every night for about a thousand years you know so uh it's it's been a place for a millennia um it's still a place to be. But now when you're going up in the high Atlas, um, just like you, a lot of people come into Marrakesh and they'll spend three or four days there and they never leave Marrakesh. Uh, so even something as close and as accessible as the high Atlas mountains oftentimes gets overlooked. So even though you might, you might think you're doing something that's kind of, you know, quote unquote on the tourist trail or something. Um, I mean, I've been doing this, I've done four or five trips in the high Atlas mountains and I can count on, Let's see, I can count two trips where I've met other groups of tourists as I've been hiking, you know, up in uh, up in the mountains. Uh, and these are like well-established trails. I'm not going off piste into like, you know, no man's land. Like I'm going on the established trail to see, you know, what the next kind of uh, accommodation is going to be like or something like that. And, um, you know, you'd be surprised at how few people get up there. So, you know, getting up to Imlil, where uh, I-M-L-I-L, Imlil. That's the kind of main hub in the high atlas for trekking into that uh, tube called National Park. Um, and that National Park's great to explore. You know, for those that love outdoors, that love mountain hiking, that maybe want to think about uh, summiting uh, Jebel Tukal, the, the highest you know mountain in uh, Morocco, uh, definitely worth it. You know, I mean, that's, that's something not to be missed. Um, you know, the other place I go is in the middle atlas mountains. And this is something that's a lot less touristed. Is a place called uh, Zawiya de Fran. Um, that's going to be a weird. So I'll spell that out for people. So Zawiya is usually spelled like Z A W I Y A is one way to spell it in English. Sorry. So Z A W I Y A is how we spell Zawiya, and it'd be D apostrophe Ifran, um, and Ifran's I F R A N E. Um, but Zawiya de Fran is um, um, one of the most picturesque little villages you'll find in the Middle Atlas. Uh, it's a very, very small town nestled at the bottom of the cliff. And over the top of this cliff is is a waterfall that cascades down. So when you arrive, you know, right behind this little village, there's a little minaret from, you know, the mosque. And there's all these kind of, uh, 
like some of them are stone, some of them are kind of stucco adobe, you know, buildings. Some of them are a couple of the newer ones with cement that usually have some sort of adobe on the outside. So right behind this, there's this cascading waterfall, and it looks like something out of the movie Avatar. Or it's just it's just super incredible, um, and that's like a little spot that not a, not a lot of people make it out to because it is, uh, you know, from Fez, it's probably about a four hour drive from Fez or so. So you know, you have to kind of be committed to get out there. I love those kinds of spots that it's just it's close enough where you don't have to go for three days, but it's far enough where you're not going to run into anybody or a lot of people. Well, what are some of the other things not to be missed? Because you used that terminology a minute ago and you can just list some things off really quick in terms of, you know, a certain food or dishes we should eat, certain um, other places maybe to go that we've missed, uh, certain uh, places to go shopping, certain types of places to stay in if we go just to have those cultural experiences. All right. I'll run that. If I had two weeks in Morocco, here's my don't miss list. Okay. Love it. Don't miss Moroccan mint tea. You're going to be offered it a lot and it is delicious. You'll be tired of it by the end of your trip, but man, you will remember it for years to come. Uh, do not miss having a hammam. You can do this in every major city in most of the villages. Uh, hammam is like a Moroccan spa treatment. Um, you will come out of there feeling like you've lost a layer of skin and you can breathe through your skin particles and it is an amazing sensation uh, and something, again, you won't forget anytime soon. Uh, do not miss wandering the Fez Medina. The Fez Medina is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and it's the world's largest pedestrian free zone, or sorry, car free zone. Uh, so it's pedestrian only, minus donkeys, a few scooters here and there. 150,000 people or so still live in the Fez Medina, uh, and it's an utter labyrinth. You will get lost there, uh, and you're supposed to, and it's wonderful. I love it. It's uh, just a, an entire look at like what medieval life was like, not only in Morocco, but in a lot of spots around the world as well. So do not miss that. Uh, do not miss a night in the desert. I don't care how touristy these packages sound, you know, this night in the desert under the stars, you know, outside of Merzuga or something like that. It's incredible. Every time I, I go down, in fact, I'm planning another trip right now. Uh, and one of the first things I, I look at doing is, can I do a night in the desert? Like it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's something not only do tourists do, but also Moroccans do as well. You know, it's considered this kind of almost like a cleansing act uh, by a lot of people. So a night in the desert for me is, is something you do not want to miss. I mean, couscous, uh, have a Friday couscous. If you can, get in with the family. If you can do any sort of fam family dinner, whether that's a couscous or if it's a tagine, um, and you can have that in a family atmosphere, do that. Um, well, I was going to actually get into that next is, is getting tips on digging into the local culture and interacting with locals and befriending locals and, and making those connections so you can go beyond the the standard... I guess, tourist experience. So it's really hard to do this in the cities. I think in just, you know, the countryside's anywhere you are. I don't care if it's a countryside in France or a countryside, you know, um, I don't know, in, in California, you know, it's a, uh, you know, when you get out, to, out of the cities and into the countries, uh, people tend to be a bit more kind of that salt of the earth type thing, um, a bit more friendly towards neighbors, uh, towards visitors, towards travelers. Um, and in, in Islam, they actually, I, I find that in the countryside, they take this tenant of Islam a little bit more seriously where, um, you should appropriate a certain amount of, 
uh, respect and hospitality to uh, your guest, you know, and that guest is anybody who comes into your town or into your village. Um, so you find a lot of times that in these smaller villages in Morocco, uh, you're treated like a king, you know, and that that's a tenet of the culture, you know, is really to um, extend the, the kind of, I'll put that in quotes, royal treatment, but extend like a, a very friendly, very familial kind of treatment to you as if, you know, you, you were one of their family, as if you were, you know, their, their cousin or their son or their daughter or something like that. So to get, I, I think to, to kind of scratch the surface of the culture a bit more and to, as you were saying, to go beyond that kind of average tourist experience, um, which I, again, I think there's a lot that's great about that, but um, if people are looking to kind of connect a bit more with that culture on a on a personal level, I think you're going to find that outside of the cities in the countryside a lot more. Um, and that could be, you know, any number of villages. Uh, you know, I, I've I've taken hikes across the mountain where I've just kind of set off on a trail. I've come across, you know, a, a, a group of huts. I don't know a better word for these, but they're just kind of, you know, if, if they were in a city, you'd call these shacks maybe or something like that. Uh, but, you know, you come across these these uh, these places where people are living um, and maybe a bit of a tenuous existence. You know, maybe they're really dependent on the agriculture of the region or um, some of them could be following sheep herds. You know, some people follow the sheep herds around. And so they're, they're, they're shepherds. They're very much kind of attached to that style of living. Um, and you know, you can hike across these regions and be invited in for some of the most delicious lunches you'll ever have. You know, these chicken. Is it one of these cultures where it's like, it's virtually guaranteed that if you go off in enough places, you're going to get invited in somewhere? Because certain places are like that. Yeah, that's my feeling, you know, is that, and that's been my experience. That's been the experience of, you know, almost every one of my friends that's gone, you know, and ventured out a bit is that it's one of these places that, you know, you're, you're eventually you know, you're just going to get taken in by the family. <laughs> you live in France now, right? Yeah, I live in Paris. Do you um, miss living in Morocco? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I do quite a bit, actually. Um, I mean, Paris is great. Don't get me wrong. You know, I get to be a writer in Paris and, you know, there's not a better cliche to probably live. Uh, okay, now I know why on your Skype <laughs> name it says living the cliche. Yeah, living the cliche. Yeah. That's why on my Skype <laughs> okay, name. got it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, they, they, but there are, I mean, there are moments when I definitely do miss living in Morocco. Um, what do you miss the most about it? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, after a while, there's this warm hearted friendliness to it that doesn't quite exist in Paris in the same way. You know, people are friendlier in Paris than I think most people give them credit for. You know, I, I find the Parisians and, you know, the French people in general, um, to be incredibly friendly and really, really nice. But there's just this kind of uh, warm-hearted spirit that is in Morocco that I found with my neighbors, that I found with, you know, the people at the local market and stuff that, um, you know, you don't you don't get elsewhere, I think. And or at least not in too many places. And I think, you know, I, I miss that. I miss being able to, you know, go outside my front door and experience that. Um, because as you know, you know, the, the further up you go, you know, the for, further north of the equator you go, the, you know, colder these cultures get. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're treading on thin ice. No pun intended. But, uh, it was intended. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about that and experiencing that every day. And, and when you say warm hearted, I can't help but think of, uh, this idea of just having these more, I guess, deeper human connections in a way when it comes down to it and 
to have that as part of your daily life, I could imagine, you know, for years and then that's, that's gone because you're in a big city now, like you said, and a little bit further north, different culture and everything. I'm sure that that would be hard to, to be away from that. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, at, at one point, you know, after living in a little town for a while, it's either time to really adjust to being there for the rest of your life or it's time to kind of move on to the next thing. So I did hit the moving on to the next thing, but you know, nostalgia is a real thing. You know, I mean, we, we always kind of, I think anywhere we move to or any, any, even moments in our life, you know, we kind of have nostalgia for these, for these other places. Maybe we lived or uh, people we've known or experiences we've had. And so I think that, that, you know, that's a real thing, but, um, you know, the nice thing is I get to go back a lot. I mean, I'm in Morocco four to six times a year minimum. You know, my wife, like I said, my wife's from Tangier. So we, we go down at least twice a year just to see the family in Tangier. Um, I'm usually down another four or five times just to, you know, do a bit of work. So I'm traveling somewhere. Kind well, of how, how's it working out now? You have a son and he's two and a half, I think. Yeah. Um, did you, oh, is it hard to be uh, traveling now and doing that and being away from him? Uh, hot tip for all those parents out there. Yeah. Travel Morocco with your kids, man. Okay, uh, yeah. That is such a kid-friendly. I mean, it's it's a ridiculously kid-friendly country. Um, you know, I find this in you know some of the other places I've been to, but even having lived in Morocco, even speaking the language, even you know uh, being mar- really married into the culture, um, it wasn't until I had a kid and we start you know going around with uh, with our son that all of a sudden this whole other window of the culture opens up. He's an immediate icebreaker. Um, you know, you go into the souks, uh, into the, you know, souks are the local markets there. You go into these local markets, people just shower the babies and kids with gifts. You know, everybody wants to touch the kids, kiss the kids, you know? Um, and so it just ends up, you know, you may make all these other friendships along the way, just parent to parent, you know, and, uh, it's, it's another wonderful experience. So I bring them with me as much as possible. And we're looking at doing one trip where, um, It'll be the first trip where it's just him and I. So the idea is um, spring break, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a trip with just him and I. So that spring the boys, break for the boys. Spring break, the boys in Morocco, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a crazy road trip, man. It's going to be wild, man. So, I think uh, it says a lot about a culture that treats children in general as, you know, so loving and accepting in that way. I think that's, um, it's not that way everywhere, unfortunately. And you go into restaurants, you know, and, uh, you know, they'll bend over backwards, you know, like uh, there's no question of, you know, the chef coming up with something off the top for a kid right away because the kid's hungry. There's no embarrassment over like dirty diapers and stuff like that. You know, I mean, you're not getting dirty looks from other diners because you might be interrupting their meal with your. Yeah, there's none of that. You know, there's none of that. You know, I mean, Morocco is kind of a loud culture anyway, but I mean, the kids just add to it. And, you know, the, the hardest part for us actually is that, um, they, you know, we're on a pretty strict kind of sleeping schedule, you know, where our son goes to bed you know, he's in bed by eight, eight thirty at night. Um, a lot of times in Morocco, you know, you'll find kids his age, like two, three years old, you know, playing out on the streets at midnight, one in the morning, um, because that's, they just have a different kind of life, uh, rhythm, you know? Right. Well, how do you feel about raising your kid in Paris now? And, and it sounds like, he's going to be a third culture kid at least for for a while or for the foreseeable future um, and being American I, I have my personal thoughts on this but I'm curious about how you feel about his childhood and and the experience you're giving him in the way you guys are are living in the place you're living and being away from your home country and it sounds like your wife's away from her home country too oh yeah 
it's a deep thought. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's, you know, like, yeah, so we are definitely raising a third culture kid. Um, I mean, my wife, her first language is Arabic. My first language, obviously, is English. And our son's first language is French. Um, so, you know, he speaks when he's playing with his toys, you know, he's speaking in French. He's telling stories to himself in French, and that's how he gets by. Um, you know, I speak English with them. She speaks Arabic with them. So even early on, um, you know, he's, he's got a good language base in all languages, you know, the, well, the three languages that we use in the house quite a bit. And so, you know, I'll, the first thing I'll say is to other parents, uh, having seen and experienced this now is, you know, if you, if you're strict with the language use and you pick one language, usually it should be your mother tongue and you stick with it. Like kids can pick it up, you know, kids can balance multiple languages. Unlike me, I struggle, you know, I'm almost 40 years old now and I struggle greatly at, you know, working on, you know, my second, third, fourth languages. I mean, I'm impressed that you speak all these languages. It's great because I've learned Norwegian finally and I would even say it's, I learned it, but it's not like I'm a master of it, you know, but Arabic and French, and that's two. I mean, I had enough problems just getting one down, still getting it down. And I think for us, especially coming from the States where we aren't, we don't typically experience language early on. Uh, we're a pretty monolingual culture still. It's it's more difficult for us to pick up that second or third language. Um, but kids can do it, you know, they're sponges, you know, they'll, they'll just learn stuff. So yeah, we're watching our son. He's uh, a little over two and a half now. And he will tell you stories in French, Arabic, and English, and he can ask for stuff. He'll talk to his grandparents, yeah, which is really important for us, for him to be able to talk to his extended family as well. So he's at that point now where, you know, he can get on Skype like we are now, and uh, he can say hello and tell people about, you know, his favorite red motorcycle and what he did at the park and, you know, all that stuff. Um, well, do you so, miss yeah. anything back at home personally? And, and also, I guess that could relate to your son too. Like he's not going to have the the certain american traditions so your last podcast i got on was uh you guys were talking you and travis uh we're talking about a road trip right doing the the cross america road trip which i've always dreamed of doing as well i think uh, travis was saying he got a um uh, what a chevy camper from 1988 89 something like that like from montana and drove it to philadelphia or whatever and uh I mean, I want to do this, you know, there's things I want to do really bad. So I got to wait a couple of years till he's older, but uh, I want to do the great American road trip. Um, Cause I've never got to do that. So, you know, that I, I'd like to do the things I miss. I think the, the biggest thing I miss, um, and that's uh, from growing up in Seattle, uh, we're blessed up there, you know, uh, in Seattle, you grew up right on Puget sound, uh, but the mountains are an hour away. Um, you know, and you can be at like Mount Rainier National Park within a couple hours. And, you know, you can be out on this rainforest on the Olympic Peninsula. So there's this great, I mean, there's just fantastic nature everywhere. And, you know, just being kind of landlocked in Paris a little bit. That's one thing I find myself missing is, you know, I wish we could go out and just do that weekend and camp and trip, you know, where we see these kind of, you know, these giant trees, you know, that you just don't have in Europe. You know, we don't, you know, they don't have those, you know. The, the Douglas firs and the, you know, redwoods, you know, or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I, I miss, I miss that. I think a little bit, you know, beyond, you know, you know, a few friends and, you know, some, you know, can stay in touch with a lot better, uh, you know, with these magical things like Skype and all that. 
uh, it is a bit easier to keep in touch, but you know, you still kind of miss them. You still kind of wish you can, you know, call up the sister and, you know, do a hangout for the weekend or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely hard with the family and friends for sure. And certain cultural things as well that I've experienced just, I, I think like, you know, have dreams of leaving your home country and then you're out. And then after when you're out for a while, then you start missing those things. And that's kind of human nature, I suppose. But yeah. uh, so how long have you been living in Norway now? Well, officially it's been almost three years, but I was going back and forth before I officially moved here. So probably somewhere close to three and a half, four years of the time spent here. You know, I ask because I'm, I'm closing in on about a decade of living overseas now. And, and I find you're you know, what happens is the ties you have back home, wherever that home is, I think, but those ties you have back home, you know, they get kind of more and more tenuous and they're, 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 they become lighter and lighter. So all of a sudden, you know, one, it's not a, a cut, you know, it's not like cutting the cord or anything like that, but it's more like these cords kind of dissipate after a while to where at one point, you know, you wake up and you realize, you know, those for like a Thanksgiving dinner, isn't that big of a deal? You know, I, I can't remember the last time I did Thanksgiving and I can't, I can't really say I miss it that much or anything like that, you know, and, which is a strange thing to say, but it's been replaced with other things, you know, um, and that that's part of the the adaptation, I think, of living in another culture is, you know, sometimes you're, um, you know, those things maybe that you, you think you're going to miss, you know, they, they, they find a replacement, you know, whether that's a favorite food or a favorite hangout or, um, yeah. Or, well, like, uh, like Bruce Willis, I think uh, traditions die hard. <laughs> Yeah, traditions die hard. <laughs> Tradition, <laughs> tradition. I miss those things, and but there is something interesting that happens. I think psychologically, when you, I think the word you used was great, dissipate, because it's not like you're cutting it or purposely. It's just kind of dissipating. I don't know how else to say it. But I haven't had a decade yet, you know, so I can't speak to that. But I think there's there is something. It takes time also to be when you're living in another culture. I think to to embrace those traditions and, and you can be a part of a tradition. Like you're saying those first year or two, you can participate in the tradition, but at least for me, it felt like, all right, well I'm participating, but it's sort of like, I'm still an outsider, you know? Whereas now if I go home with my wife to or like her families for Christmas and I'm doing their Christmas traditions, now it feels like, Oh, this is part of my family tradition. Now it's not just, me as an American be sitting in on this and experience it, experiencing it, I'm a part of this now. And I think that's a big difference for me, at least. So, And I think that, that gets more uh, kind of magnified when you have a kid in the mix as well, because all of a sudden I think, you know, you're seeing these traditions forming a part of, you know, your child's kind of existence. It's going to be their traditions. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be their traditions and you're, you're all of a sudden more a part of it then, you know, and I, and I think that that's, that all kind of wraps up into this idea of, you know, in a way kind of reestablishing our realities or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's probably something metaphysical to be said about that. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's a part of me, you know, with, uh, with my kids, I want them to have those American experiences as well, even though, they might not even be the same anymore. You just kind of have the the childhood experiences that you had. And then like, hey, for my son, I want him to, to like know what a baseball glove smells like and throw it in the back of a truck and hop in there and, and ride with his friends down to the ice cream joint. But, but the reality is probably like I would probably get pulled over and arrested for uh, driving with kids in the back of a truck without seatbelts or something. It's just not yeah, that way. Absolutely. Anymore, you know? yeah. <laughs> but the reality um, is probably your, your kid would be on his phone taking an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, these are the things that 
kind of come up when you're a parent, I it, suppose. It's tough, but, you know, and this is something that, like, because we're trying to, as we're living in France, trying to get also not only the American traditions, but also these, you know, Moroccan traditions kind of in our in our daily lives, really, but just kind of in our, you know, in our, in our, I guess, yeah, our day to day. And so uh, it, it is tricky kind of navigating that sometimes, you know, um, and it is hard to, to figure out like where he's going to get that bit of Americana, where he's going to get that bit of Moroccan Nana, Moroccan Kana, uh, and that bit of, you know, the, the kind of French culture as well. Um, that are all going to kind of wrap up into, you know, what he grows up experiencing, uh, which is why two nights ago, my wife and I um, viewed Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, it was an episode from 1981 because um, she had never seen Mr. Rogers before because they don't have that in Tangier, Morocco, strangely enough. And I grew up with Mr. Rogers and I was like, you know, I kind of want my son to grow up with Mr. Rogers, too. <laughs> so. yeah, Mr. Rogers is a good guy. Exactly. You know, you learn so much about the world. And uh, quick side note, this episode from 1981, from 1981, they were talking about electric cars on Mr. Oh, Rogers. Okay. What's taking so long, people? I know. <laughs> I've been Tesla so long, right? But, <laughs> That's but, awesome. But, yeah, but these are the things, you know, like uh, like early on, where you going to kind of give your child and, you know, what, what do you kind of miss? What do you want to include? And uh, at the same time, what are the kind of crappy parts about your childhood that you want to take out of there, you know, or the, the parts about the culture that you, um, as you became an adult, you realized probably weren't for the best, you know, um, you know, we could talk about like the over commercialization of Christmas and stuff like that, which is happening right here in France as well. You know, it's, it happens here as well, but you know, what, good what thing can, you're not missing out on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not missing out on that. Right. They do a good job of brainwashing them early on. He knows all about Papa Noel. Um, so, but you know, what can you do to curb that a little bit? And then, um, you know, just in terms of, you know, I'm sure Norway has their own kind of winter traditions, you know, here they have theirs. Um, but how do you explain to a kid early on, like, you know, this is what we do here. This is what we're going to do there, you know? Right. It gets tricky. And yeah, I think it's one thing is travel and being overseas for so long has taught me. It's just this, it's reinforced this idea of impermanence that, Really, the things you think, oh, well, this is going to be forever, you know, everything goes away at some point or everything dissipates at some point. And then we die. Now that sounds really depressing. But <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these things that we attach our identity to and these cultural things, because I've been thinking about these things a lot lately, they're really just happenstance from where you were born and where you grew up. And then if you take yourself and put yourself somewhere else, it would have been a different thing. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they don't mean anything or I value those traditions, which is why I miss them. And now I'm kind of trying to look at it with an abundance mentality of, okay, well, now my kids and, and, and myself, I get to have all these different new traditions, which are, I think Europe, Europe in general has more of a traditional kind of background. I'm not saying that right, but it's more traditions are stronger. I think they run deeper and last longer i think consistent more consistently um and i guess that america being a newer country but but now i can also cherry pick like you said the ones that uh will be really enjoyable there and it's just uh yeah this is a whole other discussion we're going off on this tangent i'm gonna have to let you go now though the last thing i was gonna ask you is you're, you're a writer in paris now i mean you started just taking a, a job somewhere and now you've been living overseas for a decade and you have a family and now you're living as a writer in Paris. I mean, who could have predicted these things? And it all starts with one overseas 
experience, which is, I think, exciting for anybody because you never know where your life's going to take you when you follow your your gut to go travel, your passion or whatever you want to call it. For the writing, how did that sort of evolve for you? I mean, because did you just decide to be a writer one day or is it just kind of, hey, I need to make an income. This is what I know. You have a master's in English, so I assume you were into writing beforehand. Did you just decide, hey, I'm going to start working for myself in some way. And I guess the overall question is just what is your advice around people who want to pursue, who want to make a career change like that and pursue something that they feel strongly about, but they're unsure about how they would eventually make a living on it. I guess to go back, uh, writing is something that I wanted to do for a long time. Um, and since I was probably a kid, uh, I just, I grew up in a, in a place where I didn't realize it was possible to actually make a living doing that. And I don't think I started realizing that honestly until sometime in my twenties, you know, and I think before that I thought, you know, there's Stephen King and there's JK Rowling and then there's everybody else, you know, just the people that can make a living writing. And then the rest of us are kind of, we have to wash dishes and then write on the side or something. Yeah, exactly. We're all going to be starting artists, you know, washing dishes, you know, living in some, you know, I don't know, basement apartment somewhere. Honestly, it took me probably sometime in my 20s where I realized that there were people out there making, you know, not millions of dollars or anything like that, but making a comfortable living writing and, you know, um, you know, doing different sorts of reporting, different sorts of, you know, even at then blogging was starting to be a thing. And uh, so that's when I first started seriously thinking about it. Um, I, I was trying at first to do a lot of, uh, you know, short stories and stuff like that. Um, utter, utter failure. Every one of them, I cannot write a short story for the life of me. Um, lots of rejection, lots of, you know, you're not good enough. This writing sucks. You know, uh, they never say that, but that's what you read between the lines. Uh, you're a bad person, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Take it really personally. You know, you're, you're a horrible person. Yeah. You just blow up your computer. Uh, uh, never send us anything, you know, ever again. I decided to, um, try to do my MFA and there so happened that the university I was teaching at had a, um, relationship with Goddard College, uh, which is where I did my MFA. And the relationship was a free tuition waiver. Um, and if I can go to school for free, I will go to school for free. So um, I had a tuition waiver to do an MFA program. Uh, that was um, a short re- short-term residency, which meant I was back in the U.S. twice a year for about eight days doing coursework and workshops and stuff like that. This semester, I worked one-on-one with a writer, um, over more over the rest of my coursework. So, um, I'd read, you know, 15 books in a semester. Um, I'd write, I don't know, a couple hundred pages of fiction, you know, all this stuff. Um, and all that was to just hone my craft, you know, and and all that was to just say, Hey, if I'm going to be a writer and do the writing thing, I need to really figure out what all that meant. So, um, I was lucky enough to, to have access to that program. And then um, after that, shortly after that, um, I got the book deal with uh, Moon, um, and I had another deal with a travel company, Morocco, where I was um, hired to do a little bit of writing for them to do like little mini city guides and stuff like that. Um, and I never, I really never thought I'd end up making any sort of money travel writing. Um, but I think the fact that I concentrated a lot on my writing without thinking about the travel part, just thinking, focusing on the writing part, that helped the travel writing. So all of a sudden when I, you know, when I talked to people or when I wrote people, um, just the, the, you know, the working on the craft of writing. Yeah. Yeah. The function of what, you know, getting from A to Z in an article was all of a sudden a lot easier to me and I could pitch that a lot easier. And all of a sudden, you know, people were, um, 
I wouldn't say lining up. They still aren't lining up to take all my work, but you know, it's a lot easier to kind of get some work out there. Um, so, you know, like, like for me, it was very much, it kind of followed this process. Um, I'm not saying everybody needs to go back and do an MFA or anything like that. Um, honestly, if it wasn't free, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but I think you need to spend time thinking about that craft, you know, thinking about that, 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 the act of writing itself and working that into your daily routine. Um, so for anybody who wants to be a travel writer, that's what I was, you know, that's what I tell them is worry, worry about the writing part before you attach the travel part to it and just write about stuff locally, you know, write about your backyard, write about, you know, the restaurant down the street, you know, um, do, you know, do 10 restaurant reviews and, you know, see if you can get any of those placed in your local newspaper or something like that, you know, I mean, start small. As far as, I mean, your other question about people kind of, even if it's not a writing thing, but, you know, you have this dream you want to follow or you have this, maybe, maybe not a dream, but maybe even just a concept of who you want to be or what you want to be doing five or 10 years from now. You know, I think taking that first step is oftentimes the hardest one um, because it is so full of uncertainty. Um, and I have yet to meet someone who regrets taking that step. I think most people kind of looking back, even though maybe they don't end up where they thought they'd be, they recognize that first step it took to get there. And, you know, they appreciated that journey a little bit more. And because of that, you know, because they weren't tied down to that thing they didn't love, they end up finding that next thing that they really do love and then they really do cherish. So I, you know, I think, I think if, I mean, that's the, that's the hard part though, really is taking that first step. Yeah. Thanks for that. And I think, you know, like you said, opening up to also just to the idea of, hey, there are people making a living doing this. Let's be yeah. open-minded about this because if you look in any industry for anything, there are people making a living at it. So it's easy to say, well, it's too competitive. I can't get in. But you have to start somewhere. And, and for you, that sounds like working on your craft and just being open to the fact that, hey, I can get into this and I can make a living doing this and being open to that and then and working on it. <laughs> <laughs> going yeah. after it. Yeah. And I think that's the, the going after it too is, you know, um, I mean, even how I ended up my, my, my steps to get to San Francisco, I'm not going to go into all that, but even that, um, it required me leaving, uh, a home I'd always known, you know, like I'd always lived in Seattle. I'd taken some trips and stuff, but I'd, I'd never not called Seattle home. And, you know, my road to get to San Francisco took me through a couple different places. And, you know, even, even then I think, with each move, I realized how much people become tethered to a place. And the more you become tethered to a place, you're, you know, whether that's through career, family, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, kids, whatever it is, the, the more you're tethered to a place, the more you limit yourself in terms of what else you might be able to do. Um, because you're not able to pursue that job halfway across the world, or you're not be able, you're not able to, you know, um, Go live in, you know, Portugal where the cost of living is super cheap and you can, you know, make your money as a freelance photographer and live a really, really nice life, you know, because you're maybe stuck in that, you know, basement apartment in New York that, you know, costs, I don't know, 10 times what any place in Portugal it's going to cost, you know. I mean, that was another big lesson for me, I think, too, is, you know, and that goes into your guys, you know, the location in indie type lifestyle. It's just realizing, you know, what is you know, what the world has to offer and how you can kind of leverage all these different places in terms of what you want to do. Yes, absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing all of that and your story and all the advice on Morocco and everything that you have today, <laughs> Lucas. It was really fun chatting with you. And uh, your website, once again, is lucasm.com. 
amazonmarypeters.com. I was going to say Amazon, your middle name, but I don't know what it is. So Matthew, I'm guessing it's not. Matthew, there you go. Lucas Amazon Matthew Peters, <laughs> lucasmpeters.com. Sorry, Lucas. Uh, <laughs> that's God, funny. Let's chat again soon, man. We could talk about uh, living in Paris, or I just did a trip to Iceland that was fantastic, you know? So uh, that would yeah. be fun, man. Hey, maybe we'll bring uh, everybody down. Okay. I see. I think I see somewhere in the corner I can crash there uh, in your apartment or something. I'm inviting oh, yeah, no, I mean, we, we got a, we got a fold out couch over there. Yeah, myself over right now down to Paris for a quick quick trip now but uh <laughs> have a sleepover man it'll be great <laughs> that's awesome man no I appreciate your time and uh it was really cool to hear just about your journey and where it's taken you and your happy decade anniversary overseas I guess and um yeah look forward to keeping in touch and just hearing what you're up to over the next decade Oh man, I uh, look uh, look forward to you know hearing all the other podcasts that aren't mine because I can't stand <laughs> it myself. So. <laughs> it was great, man. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me on Zero to Travel, man. All right, take care. <laughs> Bye, Jason. There you go, my conversation with Lucas. Hope you enjoyed listening in. Thank you, Lucas, for stopping by the show, and thanks for giving me even more reasons to go explore in Morocco. That was fun. I love talking destinations. Always a pleasure. If you have a destination that you're an expert on and you think, hey, I could share some cool stuff with this Zero to Travel caravan, this global community of travel junkies like me, you can hit me up on email and we'll see if it's uh, something we can get on the podcast that'll help people. Feel free to let me know who you are, your experience with a destination and what you might be able to share that can help out this community. I'm always open to doing more destination-themed episodes as people seem to like those. I don't do them very often. If you want more destination stuff, just let me know. Hit me up and just say, hey, more destination stuff, please, because I'm happy to bring that to you. This is your show, my friend. You know it. I say it all the time. This is a community-powered show, so you got to let me know what it is that you want so I can deliver it to you. I can bring the goods for you, my friend. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a Moroccan proverb. First, I want to thank Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga. What you're going to find is a page with all of my favorite Tortuga gear, the backpacks that I use, and some other amazing stuff that they have. You get 10% off anything you order there with the promo code TRAVEL. If you just enter the promo code TRAVEL when you check out, you'll get 10% off anything, and you'll also be supporting this show. Holidays are coming up. If you want a good gift for yourself or others, go to this link, zerototravel.com slash Tortuga, promo code TRAVEL, 10% off. Check it out. Thanks again. Now this Moroccan proverb, even the loftiest of mountains begins on the ground. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.